one of the elders here in the church. Uh, I've just gotten back from uh, doing a bit of ministry away. So uh, the first Sunday I was preaching at a church in Melbourne just to sort of encourage and support the church there. And then uh, I was preaching at a church family camp in Adelaide the weekend after, but they, they asked me at this church family camp to do four sessions on the Reformation, on history. Uh, and so the first three sessions went for an hour each uh, of me speaking, and the last one close to two hours. But, you know, you ask me to talk about Knox or someone like that, it's going to take a while, so, you know. Uh, anyway, it was exciting. That involved Q&A sessions, uh, and literally I was having to pull people up because people that engaged on the sort of material. So it was really great to be a part of. Uh, so that's what we've been up to. Beth led, uh, led the music for the whole weekend as well. So we were just there, kind of ministry duo for a weekend. It was great. Uh, really good time to be engaged in that. Now, if I was going to run a little test this morning, now I'm not literally about to do this, so nobody do what I'm about to say. Uh, if I was to ask... Anyone who considered themselves a mature Christian to sit on this side of the room, and anyone who's an immature Christian to sit on this side of the room, uh, I wonder how the split would go. I wonder how much shuffling there would be. I wonder how many would be actually bold enough to go to this side of the room and say, yes, I'm a mature Christian. Well, here's the thing. In one sense it should not divide by age. What if we have an 80-year-old in the church who came to faith yesterday, right? They've got to do a lot of maturing in the faith, as opposed to someone maybe much younger who's been a Christian a long time and so is more mature in the faith, which also says that there should be a bit of a division by age. Because the longer we have been a Christian, the more mature in the faith we should be. True? So we should see something in division by age because the longer we are following Christ, the more mature we should be. What marks Christian maturity, however? That's a question worth asking. How, we, how do we divide according to Christian maturity? Well, this is not our key passage this morning, but I'll give you one example. This is Hebrews 5, and it has to say this. We have a great deal to say about this, and it's difficult to explain, since you have become too lazy to understand. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he's an infant. Solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. The immature must be taught again and again the basic principles of the scriptures of salvation because, according to God's word, they are lazy and have not trained themselves to distinguish between good and and evil. In short, they're usually happy chasing the next experience, the next feel-good moment, happy dwelling in the culture of which they are part, but they don't spend time studying the Word of God deeply and seeking to apply the Word of God to their life, right? Those who through training 
have learned to distinguish good from evil, have learned to apply the Scriptures to the situations they face. But that's a mark of maturity. You apply the Scripture constantly to your life. The reality is, we could have a church of 2,000 people. We could have the most loud and amazing music. And we could have someone holding up a Bible as they motivate you. But in the eyes of God, we could have 2,000 infants in the room, sucking in an immature message, like a baby being pacified by a dummy, one in their mouth and one in the pulpit, right? This is what can happen in the church. Immature Christians not applying the Word of God constantly to their life. Well, this brings us to Peter. If you cast your minds back, we've had a couple of weeks break. We've been looking very strongly at false teachers. Their greed. They're focused so much on self, they don't even care that you can clearly identify their sin. And today we're going to see the impact of false teaching in the church. So if you have your Bibles, please open up to 2 Peter 2, and we're going to look at 17 to 22 this morning. 2 Peter 2, 17 to 22. Our context, false teachers. These people are springs without water, mists driven by a storm. The gloom of darkness has been reserved for them. For by uttering boastful, empty words, they seduce with fleshly desires and debauchery people who have barely escaped from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption, since people are enslaved to whatever defeats them. For if having escaped the world's impurity through the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in these things and defeated, The last state is worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than, after knowing it, to turn back from the holy command delivered to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its vomit and a washed sow returns to wallowing in the mud. Amen. Who are false teachers according to Peter? Or what are false teachers? They are springs without water. Middle East can be a barren place. Peter wants you to imagine that you are hiking in the heat, in the desert wilderness, but you know that there's a spring up ahead. And as you crest the ridge and your mouth is parched, you crest the ridge and it's dry. It leaves nothing but devastation. No life-giving water. Nothing but dust. Crush that you can't go on. He says, this is the false teaching. They promise water to a weary soul. They promise all kinds of things, but in the end, they lead you to a dry spring. What's the dry spring they lead you to? Worldly promises that are not the living water of Jesus Christ. Okay, so we come to a false promise, and in the end, 
It's a dried spring. Remember, in our context, Peter's been talking about false teachers that come from within the church. It's not like we're talking about out there following some guru. We're talking about who you listen to in the church and their promises can be a dry spring. Now, Peter further adds to his argument by one that I think fits Bundaberg quite well at the moment by saying they're like mists driven by a storm. A mist promises life-giving rain, but in the end it's just fog and it still leaves the ground parched and dry. Feeling that at the moment, aren't we? Every now and then, a few places out where we live, etc., there's been a couple of drops of rain. You think, oh, this is it. This is the moment. It actually does nothing to nourish the ground. Right? That's what Peter says a false teacher is. It promises something, but it will not nourish the soul. It will not change your eternal destination. Peter says, for these teachers, the gloom of utter darkness or blackest darkness has been reserved for them, the pending doom of judgment. It's been a chirpy few weeks in Peter lately, hasn't it? Why, though, why, why is he just hitting this again and again? I was talking to Chris before and and Chris kind of made a joke to me, which I thought was pretty good. He said, uh, I just want to entitle the sermon online, and Peter slams the false teachers again. Um, and it feels a bit like that, does it? Why? Because this is a warning. It's a warning to you and me. It continues to happen within churches. Listen, says Peter, listen. It's not going to lead you to the living water. And this is why it's so important. Verse 18, Peter says, by uttering boastful, empty words, they seduce with fleshly desires. Boastful, empty words, they seduce with fleshly desires. What are these boastful, empty words that appeal to fleshly desires? Well, it's really simple. A promise that is empty is a promise that is made to the flesh, that Jesus died to set you free from. That's really straightforward. Any promise made that appeals to fleshly desire is a promise that is empty. God is not going to fulfill promises to the flesh. The very things Jesus died to set you free from. Right? All of these things that they want to carry on with. You're amazing. You're anointed. You're an overcomer. God has a special plan for you. Blah, blah. Jesus is amazing. Jesus is anointed. Jesus overcame sin and death. Jesus gave you his word and says, live it. You're not special. You're called to live according to his promises, his truth, his word, because he's amazing and he won heaven for you. Right? We don't need more than that. On the day of Pentecost, over 3,000 believed. I want all of you after church to give me a rundown on the lives of each of those 3,000 people. How many of their stories do you know? Almost none, right? Why? Because what they did was they met in their homes, they broke bread, they prayed, they talked about the apostles' teaching, they gathered in the temple courts, 
In short, they became Christians and followed the Word of God. And that's their story. We don't know more than that. It's your story, it's my story. Right? Obey the Word, honour Christ. That is what we are called to do. Very simple. Don't get me wrong. Jesus chose you. He died for you. He adopted you by his blood into the family of God. Yes, you are special, but it's not because of you. It's because Jesus loved you despite you. My kids are special. Not because they're exceptional. Sorry, my children. They're special because they're my children. And I love them no matter what. You are special because you are God's children and he loves you no matter what. Your Christian walk involves you walking after Jesus, Jesus being made like him through discipline and pruning. And this is what the mature know. The mature in Christ are not carried along by promises of how wonderful they are. They're carried along by knowing how wonderful God is and he will bring them home. Right? It's an important shift. The mature are not carried along by promises of how wonderful their life will be. They're carried along by knowing how wonderful God is. And he has promised them a home. That's what separates the mature. We want to know more of our pearl of great price and less about ourselves. Because it's all about Christ. The back half of verse 18 they seduce with fleshly desires and debauchery people who have barely escaped from those who live in error. Who's he referring to there? People who have barely escaped. He's talking about brand new Christians. Right? Brand new Christians who have just escaped, who have just been set free from those who live according to the world and its desires. Those who have not yet had time to train themselves to apply the scriptures to the decisions of their life to learn to distinguish between good and evil. New Christians, brand new, excited, are susceptible to false teachers giving them fleshly promises. And that's what Peter is saying. Those who are new, they haven't had time yet. They're still on the milk because they're a young Christian. They're susceptible to be seduced. Church, can I plead with you, it is not just the elders who are responsible for guarding those immature Christians in that place. It's all the mature Christians of the church. It's all those who have learned through constant use to distinguish between good and evil, who are keeping an eye out for, who are guarding and protecting those who are new in the faith from false teachers and false promises. There are truly, I think, few more heartbreaking things in the church than to see someone believe, profess faith, start to grow, and then see them head off the worldly promises that were given through a church. Taught from within that there's a spring of fleshly desire that leads them away to a dry and barren wilderness. Man, that's heartbreaking. But the mature in Christ are the ones that we're called to watch out for, 
to guard, to help them understand, to train in the Word of God, to distinguish between right and wrong. Verse 19, the false teachers promise these immature Christians freedom. That's their promise, freedom. Freedom from what? From living a life honouring to God according to his word. Jerome, a couple of weeks ago, had a look at antinomianism for us, which is great, right? Antinomianism, anti-law, in other words, you can be a church free from all restriction. You are saved by grace through faith, therefore live how you want. Right? And you can be open to that message as a new Christian. Jesus paid the penalty of all of your sin, therefore it doesn't matter how you live. Now, there aren't that many churches who teach antinomianism nowadays. There are some. But I want to say this. It's just as important what a church doesn't teach as what they do. If you're not teaching God's standards, if you're not teaching what constitutes sin, if you're not teaching what is wrong with the world and its desires, you are antinomian. I know a large church that, if you remember back to the referendum on gay marriage, I know a large church that before the referendum, the leadership team definitely did not support gay marriage. I also know for a fact they never, ever taught on things that could upset some people. So they avoided topics like homosexuality being wrong, abortion being wrong, trans being wrong. They avoided all of these things. As a leadership team, they didn't agree with them, but they made sure they never taught on them. When the referendum came into being, they decided it was time that they better address the issue. And they told their church, we won't support this. Right? Because what they weren't teaching was just as informative to a church as what they were. 90% of their church supported it. Within a month, most of the leadership team were sacked, apart from a couple who changed their view. Right? Because what they weren't willing to take a stand on is as important as what you are. They were never willing to say, guess what? Honouring Christ means honouring his word. Honouring what it says. We must be willing to stand against fleshly desires. Okay? What you don't stand on is super important as well. Note the use of words like seduce and debauchery. Right through Peter, there's a a sense here that the promises that are being made, the antinomianism exists in this kind of, there's a sexual element to it, that there's sexual freedom for those who have cast off the shackles of the law. Uh, So, in other words, Christ has no opinion on these issues, and you can simply live love is love, right? So that's kind of built into the text. We talk about that enough in this church, I don't think we need to dwell on it. But here's the thing, it goes deeper than that. The word is just a general sense about sexual immorality, right? It's just as important for us to remember, the Bible teaches that a man is a one-woman man. He gets married and that's it. He is a one-woman man. A woman is a one-man woman, right? It's important we teach on those things. It's just as important it carries a connotation about not sleeping together until we're married, about honouring God or about pornography. All of these things are inbuilt into this, right? We don't have freedom to do whatever we want. No, no, no. We align ourselves to the Word of God. Are we saved by that? 
Come on, church. No. no seriously, we're going to be writing lines later. No, we're not saved by that. We're saved by grace through faith, but we are saved to honour God, to grow in holiness. And that means we're going to look more like Jesus. We're going to look like his word. So we're saved to a transformation, not by it. Okay, but it's important to recognise that we teach that. Your life's going to look different if you become a Christian because you're being made like Christ. We often talk about the tensions we hold in the gospel, tensions we must hold in following Jesus. One of those tensions is you must daily confront your sins. You must repent from them, turn away from them, fight against them. We must realize that we are never perfect, that we need constant correction and rebuking from the Word of God and from those brothers and sisters who love us. But that is held in tension with we're never crushed, we're never carrying a burden of guilt and shame too heavy for us because the, the tension we hold is that our debt is paid in full that our perfection is guaranteed on that day when you behold Jesus face to face and in an instant are made just like him, is the promise of God. And we hold those two things in tension. Your sin is worse than you can comprehend in the face of our glorious and holy God. And the glory that you will share with him throughout eternity is also greater than you can comprehend. This is the tension of Christianity, but knowing that our eternal reward is true means we can face our daily fight with sin. Okay, we can be honest about where we're at. The second half of verse 19 declares, but they themselves are slaves of corruption, since people are enslaved to whatever defeats them. Right, it's a simple point, isn't it? They promise freedom. But here's the truth. They are slaves of corruption. They have twisted the scriptures. Why? Because they cannot overcome the battle against their fleshly desire, and so they twist the scriptures to suit their desires. That's what Peter is saying. They are a slave to the thing that defeats them. The reason they teach like they do is because they cannot overcome this thing that owns them. It'd be like me being a chain smoker, utterly addicted, unable to go 30 minutes without a cigarette and tell you that freedom lies in taking up smoking. Right? It's ridiculous. That's what false teachers do, unwilling to deny their flesh. They justify the sin that's defeating them. Slave to money? Justify your money. A slave to comfort. Justify comfort. A family member is a slave to sexual sin. Justify sexual sin. It goes on and on. But in the end, it just leads to corruption and not springs of living water. Church, the mature don't look for these promises. The mature aren't looking for promises of freedom for fleshly sin. Our eyes are fixed on Jesus as we fight the good fight and wrestle with sin and run the race to 
Peter finishes in verses 20 to 22, which I'll reread to you. For if having escaped the world's impurity through the knowledge of the Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in these things and defeated, the last state is worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than, after knowing it, to turn back from the holy command delivered to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit, and a washed sow returns to wallowing in the mud. He's quite expressive, Peter, isn't he? All right. One of the two key questions we must answer in closing is, is who's it referring to right here in this passage? The false teachers, which has been part of our context, or the new converts, the immature, that we've also looked at. There are hints in the original language for both. So I read compelling arguments for both sides as to why it's referring to the false teachers and as to why it's referring to the new converts. Which led me to conclude the answer is yes. I think he's referring to both groups. He's just had them both in context and there are little hints that it's referring to the false teachers and there are little hints that it's referring to the new converts and I think what we have here is a statement of what happens to the apostate. Those who are apostate and those who are headed that way. I think that's what the passage is referring to. The false teachers who have shown their condemnation and that is where they're going. But those who are also beginning to believe their false promises. It's a warning. Okay, so I think we have both things going on here in the passage. If they have escaped the muck of the world, the sin of the world through the gospel, but then re-enter the world and defeated by sin, they are in a worse state than the first, says Peter. That's an interesting one, isn't it? Why? Peter says it would have been better for them not to know the way of righteousness than to turn their back on it. Why? I think it's because you can only hear the gospel of grace that sets you free for the first time once. You can only hear the gospel of grace which will set you free for the first time once. You can only learn that you're a sinner, but that Jesus died for you to pay the penalty of your sin for the first time once. You can only realize it's about grace and not about works for the first time once. Why does that matter? Well, if you've been in the church for a while, you will know people who heard the gospel and seemingly repented found tears at amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And then they rejected it. They knew the truth and then walked away to wallow in the mud. And when you try to share with them, it goes precisely nowhere. Why? Because they heard the truth and then rejected it. 
you are presenting them with the good news they chose to walk away from. Amazing grace, how poor the sinner, but did not save a wretch like me. Right? It's hard to share the gospel with those who have learned the truth and willingly rejected it, is what Peter is saying. I'm not saying that a person who once believed cannot come back. I am saying along with Peter that they are in grave risk of doing so. You know, we've got to be honest, church, about this, this topic. Too often I speak to parents here in the church and they just want to deceive themselves about their kids. Oh, my child once offered a prayer at Sunday school and now they live entirely in the world not for Jesus at all, wallowing in the mud. Oh, but they prayed a sinner's prayer. You know, we've got to be honest enough to say, hang on, they're in danger here of total apostasy. That's Peter's warning. They're in danger here, but they are not saved. We've got to be honest enough to look at people who are heading back into the mud and share the gospel with them. Pray for them to accept the good news. Pray for them to repent and turn around. Don't try and rest on past promises. Look at who they are and share the gospel with them. Right? Let's not cling on to, to something that shields us from the reality of what's happening. People heading into the muck of the world. Yeah, be honest enough to grab them and tell them the good news again. Share with them. Pray that they repent. It's not enough to make a one-time sinner's prayer. Is their life growing in maturity, growing in the holiness of God? Because that's what we're looking for. Right? Take Peter's warning and get involved, get engaged, share with them the gospel before they become the truly apostates. Peter says, it's like, dog returning to its vomit or a pig going back to the mud. When you see it happening, don't deceive yourself. Pray. Pray and share the good news. This verse does not teach that you can lose your salvation. It teaches that if you walk away for good from the righteous life of Christ, the one he called you to, you won't be saved because you never were. Now, this is taught in Scripture, right? Listen, this is just 1 John 2.19, just really quickly, 1 John. Listen to what it says. They went out from us, those who were within. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. Right, listen to that. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. If they had belonged, they would have remained. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belong to us. Right? We're going to take this seriously, church. If they leave, then we've got to get praying for them. Not clinging to some false hope, but praying that they'll repent and put their faith in the Lord, come to the church, grow in righteousness, begin to apply the word to their lives. Accept the warning and pray that God will save them. Also, church, it's a call for us to be on guard against false teachers. 
that will lead these new believers away. Right? False teachers who might present worldly promises in a wonderful package, but as a spring of dry water. A mature Christian always looks to Jesus as their prize and fulfillment and not worldly promises. A mature Christian can distinguish between true teaching from the Word of God versus teaching with excuses of worldliness. A mature Christian can help protect and guard the new Christian from false teachers who would corrupt them. Right? Let's take seriously the warnings of Scripture and take seriously that we will train and equip and help our brothers and sisters learn from the Word, to apply it to their lives, and grow in their ability to distinguish good from evil. Right? Take Peter's scripture as a warning. Let's do our best to preach the good news to everyone around us and protect them from the false messages of these so-called teachers. Let's pray. Lord, it does feel like Peter has been drumming this message home again and again and again. And the truth is, the reality is that each one of us needs to hear it again and again. Our flesh is always there, waiting to be fulfilled, wanting its desires fulfilled. We pray that as we read your word, it would help us again to refocus everything on Christ, deny the flesh, focus on the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, that we would look to your word as our sole guide, our sole authority, and we would use your word to distinguish between right from wrong. Lord, for those who have been doing it in this church for years, who are strong in their faith, who who can withstand fleshly promises. Lord, they may, may they take seriously the responsibility to help the immature, to help those who are at risk of believing false teaching. May they take them to the Word, show them from the Word, teach them how to use the Word to distinguish between right and wrong. Lord Jesus, you are our prize. You are our pearl of great price. Our promise of eternity gives us all the hope and courage we need. Lord, with our eyes fixed on you, may we boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.